0: Welcome to Let's Talk Loyalty, an industry podcast for loyalty marketing professionals. I'm your host, Paula Thomas, and if you work in loyalty marketing, join me every week to learn the latest ideas from loyalty specialists around the world. This show is sponsored by Comarch, a global provider of innovative software products and business services. Comark's platform is used by leading brands across all industries to drive their customer loyalty. Powered by AI and machine learning, Comark technologies allow you to build, run, and manage personalized loyalty programs and product offers with ease. For more information, please visit Comark.com. Fred Reicheld, a fellow at Bain & Company, is most famous for creating the Net Promoter System, the framework now used by over two thirds of Fortune 1,000 companies to measure their customer loyalty. He is the author of four previous best-selling books on driving customer loyalty, and today he joins me to discuss his latest work, a fascinating new book called Winning on Purpose. Now, as you can imagine, it was a real privilege for us in Let's Talk Loyalty to get an advanced copy of the book for today's interview. And I can honestly say the key messages in it were both unexpected and powerful. Fred believes it's time to challenge the very fundamental idea about the primary purpose of a business, which he says is not to drive profits for shareholders, but instead to enrich the lives of our customers. His profoundly new approach is actually also incredibly profitable. So in this interview, he shares how it works, why it works, and also introduces his latest tool, a new framework to support Net Promoter Score called the Earned Growth Rate. Fred describes it as the accounting twin we need to ensure that every business leader is crystal clear on the power and profitability of delighting customers so that they come back for more and bring their friends. I'm honestly thrilled to bring you today's interview with an industry legend, Fred Reicheld, and share his work winning on purpose. So, Fred Reicheld, I know it's a stormy day there with you today. Uh, First of all, welcome to Let's Talk Loyalty.
1: Nice to be here, Paula.
0: Great to have you. I'm a big fan of your work, Fred. Thank you. So we have a lot to talk about um, in terms of the book, Winning on Purpose, literally released two days ago on Amazon. Um, But before we get into talking about all of the new concepts in there, particularly, I suppose, the mindset of loyalty and all of the amazing work that you've developed over the last, I think it's 10 years, in fact, since you wrote your last book, isn't it? Indeed. Wow. Okay. so we'll get into all of that. But before we uh, talk about the book itself, first of all, just tell me, Fred, what is your favorite loyalty statistic?
1: Well, for many years, it's been net promoter score. Um, but I think uh, in the last year, it's transitioning at least equally to the earned growth rate, the, the, the actual accounting measure of how much of uh, a company's business is derived from companies coming back, customers coming back for more mm. and referring their friends. They're, <coughs> you can almost think of them as twin metrics. One supports the other, but mm-hmm. I really think we need an accounting-driven hard metric for accountability and and uh, and pushing loyalty even further toward the science.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right, Fred. So, yes, I was expecting a net promoter score to be the obvious choice. Um, you created that metric. I think it was 2002. Now, nearly 20 years ago, am I right? Yes. Wow. So, and I was looking through, there's, I think, over two thirds now Fortune 1000 firms that are using NPS as a framework, Mm -hmm. I think with varying degrees of success. And I think that's something that we do need to probably talk through. I know it's an area you've a lot of pride, but I think also frustration around in terms of how it's executed. But just because this is a brand new invention, Fred, Talk us through earned growth rate. I fundamentally agree with the uh, the need for an accounting-based principle. I think it's something in the past I have suffered from extensively, in fact, is to be able to articulate to colleagues in a finance department as to exactly the value of the investment in our work and loyalty. So can you talk us through what you've invented now with the earned growth
1: rate? Yeah, I'd be happy to. And I think it probably makes sense to start with first principles. Um, I, uh, for, for many, many years, have, have come to see that great businesses are built on love, not greed. And yet all of the serious metrics that we use for running those businesses and holding people accountable are based on greed. The, the financial system essentially orients toward profits for us. How much can we extract from our customers' wallets?
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: of course, it's necessary to have a sustainable uh, business uh, to to be profitable. And yet, when the ninety nine percent of the reliable metrics are focused on that issue, it, it, then greed overwhelms love, and and uh, and you lead it leads you down a path that's essentially self destructive. I think one of the reasons businesses mm-hmm. get to such large scale and then collapse is because they become, the larger they get, the more they're run through the communication and mindset created uh, and en- enabled by mm-hmm. accounting numbers. Yeah. So the reason for Net Promoter was this idea that, well, actually, if businesses are built on love and, and enriching the lives of our customers, enabling our teams to to lead lives of meaning and purpose through great service to customers, so great it enriches their lives, that set of ideas... Mm. You really have to measure that. And, and, and I started down that path with net promoter, just, you know, how many people feel like their life has been enriched. Those are promoters. How Mm. many feel like the company has diminished their life? Those are detractors. Mm. So net promoter score, I could have called net lives enriched, but you know it it is what it is. And I think (laughs) one of the reasons it's two thirds of the world using it, according to fortune magazine is business people get it. They want promoters. Who yes. come back and buy more and bring their friends mm-hmm. and fewer detractors. But I think what inspires employees is of all the lives we touch, how many are enriched, how many are diminished. And that's mm-hmm. what drives each individual human, that you know, their soul is based on that objective function, on love. Yeah. So this has been the journey, and and so many people have adopted Net Promoter and then misused it. They they hold people accountable to this inherently soft survey based score. Mm. And it's and then they stop caring about loving their customer and learning how to take the feedback and and get better. They just want to score because their boss is going to fire them if they don't get a good score. And that then destroys much of the value of the system. Um, I've preached against that. I've said, gee, never link this to your frontline employee bonuses or their Mm. employability. Never post all the results and humiliate the bottom quartile Mm. because all that does is make sure that they'll bribe or plead or gimmick their way into an acceptable score and learn very little from the customer and probably leave the customer feeling a lot less love for the company. Yeah. The love your customers feel it being expressed in coming back for more and bringing their friends. And, and yeah. that is calculable. I lay it out in a HBR article and in the book. Yeah. And I hope that that can become the focal point that eventually becomes even more important than uh, current profits. Yeah. As a metric that in, inspires good behavior and attracts the kind of employees you want and need to mm-hmm. to attract and retain if you're going to live in this digital world.
0: So Fred, you have used the word love a lot in in your discussion about what makes companies successful. And I have to say going through the book, um, I obviously loved to see that coming through because it's something that as human beings we can all connect with. But I don't think it's something that I've seen in very many business books. With the obvious exception, with the likes of obviously saying, you know, we love Apple products or something in a quite um, generic kind of way. Well, what kind of response are you getting now that you're talking about truly loving your customers as a mindset from management?
1: Well, it's still a little bit early to tell since the book was just released. Um, sure, but I certainly within Bain and Company and the people I deal with, I think they understand that that higher standard is actually the right. Target uh, the right objective, and in fact, it is um, necessary for great organizations. That, and I start in the book with mm. my recognition that great leaders that I've met over the years and have built these mm. great or- organizations that that earn enormously high retention rates and and high the highest net promoter scores. The leaders of those companies did not set out to earn their customers loyalty that they, they loved, Mm. they, they wanted to treat their customers so well that they would come back for more and bring their friends. And, and that second one, bring their friends, refer their friends is an act of love. The reason, the reason employee or excuse me, the reason a customer Mm. uh, recommends to a friend or refers to a friend is because they want something good for that friend. They think they've discovered an experience that will enrich their friend's life. Yeah, and and that's it's that cycle of love that is at the center of of uh, great human relationships and 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 great corporate. Uh, accomplishments. Mm. So, you know, love, you got to define it. People say, oh, I love my wife. I love my dog. I love ice cream. (laughs) There's a lot of love out there. The the kind, the kind that I think is meaningful in this arena is the kind of love. I mean, it's almost a religious thing again. you know, the the Jesus message of love thy neighbor as thyself. Yeah, it is. Your happiness is derived by how much happiness you can create in your partner or the, uh, the person you're, you're serving, the person you care about. And and when you think of happiness being derived through happiness someplace else, a story that comes to mind is Scott Cook, who joined Bain & Company about the same time I did. Scott's the founder of Intuit, the huge okay. yeah. like $150 billion, $200 billion market cap wow. success story and with TurboTax and QuickBooks and so forth. Sure. Scott has regularly said, Fred, we don't deserve a dollar of profit until we've made our customers happy. Wow. And it sounded a lot like Truett Cathy at Chick-fil-A, completely different guy, but his happiness came from turning frowns into smiles. He wanted to solve customer problems and make their lives better. Mm. And this was not all about getting rich. It wasn't all about Mechanically manipulating the uh, repeat mm. purchases to, to to get rich. It was, I want to make people happy. Yeah. And, and the last st- example I use is uh, General Harrys, who ran USAA for a long time, mm. former vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Um, he said, "Fred, you know, good generals, they care about their troops. You know, they want to make sure that they understand their mission, that they're they they embrace the mission." They mm-hmm. have the tools to get there. But yeah. then my job as a leader is to care for them, to, to, to care for their safety and their well-being. Mm-hmm. And when a leader loves their and, – and, and Chuck Krulak, who ran the Marines for a long time, was the other guy who said, it, it's love, Fred. That this, You inspire loyalty through yeah. love. Love wow. begets loyalty. Yeah. And, and if it works in the military, I have, you know, I have a feeling <laughs> it works in business and, and life.
0: Wow, my goodness. Well, yes, I think that's the most extreme example that you've used, Fred. So I I haven't had any experience with the military, but, you know, for for that uh, mindset to be so laser focused on on caring. And I know in the book you refer to it as the golden rule. And just to refer back to, I suppose, the the referring to a friend piece as obviously net promoter score is defined and asked very articulately around. What I've always loved about that framework was it was that person, first of all, putting their own reputation on the line, because I think we've all experienced the risk of recommending something and you only do that when you absolutely believe it's the best thing. So so I loved that dual aspect of it makes me look good and I can share that experience with somebody that I know they're going to be super thrilled and we'll both benefit.
1: Yeah, and it's sort of the magic of that of that loyalty-based business or love-based business system that mm. out of nothing, you know. That it, what does it cost to, to a friend to to refer a friend? Very, mm. th- there's risk involved, as you say. It's your reputation, but yeah. if you can find something that will enrich uh, the life of a friend or a loved one, yeah, um, and it costs you nothing except that advice. And then that friend does have a wonderful experience. It's, it's like magic. It's, that's value creation. And I yeah. think it's that, that little engine that love, it has this uh, economic flywheel that is so poorly understood in business, but is the source of all great successes, I know, because they mm-hmm. all have that simple flywheel at their core. Mm-hmm. They treat customers in a loving way. And when those mm-hmm. customers feel the love, they come back for more and bring their friends. Mm. And that little cycle, which accounting doesn't measure very well at all, mm. is the core. Whether it's a Costco or an Apple, mm-hmm. um, or an Intuit mm-hmm. or an Enterprise Rent-a-Car, it's the same driving flywheel that has dri- that, that has resulted in their astonishing growth rates yeah. and and profitable generation of cash. Yeah. So you know, with these metrics, there the the the, the net promoter and earn growth. My goal isn't just to help companies get more profitable. That's a that's an outcome. Mm. But it's it's to understand the core driver of success in human relationships and in in business relationships, um, because it's so poorly understood today because it hasn't it's just not measured very well.
0: Yeah. And and you're absolutely right, Fred. And I've said many times, you know, customers feel it when the management intention is to be of service. So that energy of love is very difficult to articulate without something like the earned growth rate. So I think what you're doing is giving us that facility to, um, I think what you said, first of all, is capture at the start of a customer relationship, the source of where they've come from so that we can start to understand how much value have I earned from people bringing their friends versus how much have I had to go out and buy in terms of other marketing activity or customer acquisition. So I think that's the huge shift in terms of how the business community is going to start to respect earned growth rates is a new framework.
1: Yeah, some brilliant intuitive leaders um, Tony Shea comes to mind, tragically died last year. It was yes. the uh, CEO of uh, Zappos for, for a long time. Yes, he, yeah, I loved
3: he, him. Uh, he he
1: yeah. told me, "Fred, um, marketing and sales and advertising, those are a tax you have to pay for not being special to your customers." Wow. And and that mindset that Gosh, I thought that's how you grow a business. You know, you hire a sales force, you pay sales commissions, you you have marketing gimmicks, you have loyalty programs, you have all this expense. Mm. But no, that's only if you yeah. if when if your customers don't feel the love, because yeah. when they feel the love, they come back for more and bring their friends, and that starts this flywheel humming that yeah. makes it very you really don't need much marketing and sales and advertising expense when you've got that flywheel spinning. You need a little, yeah, um, but to get started. Sure or just remind people of what you stand for, because the mm. world operates on this financial mindset.
2: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: Business is about greed and self-interest. Why do so many people distrust capitalism today?
2: Mm-hmm. Because
1: they run it, it, through the financial metrics of greed and self-interest. And mm-hmm. the great ones, of course, they know how those economic metrics work and, and sustain them, but the core fire that's driving them is love making their customers' lives better. And that's why good people want to work there, and and why can they pay them more? Mm. Because (laughs) they because they're not paying Tony Shay's tax, and but accountants don't calculate them that way. So until we start really having a deeper economic understanding, and 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 earn growth is good because um, how do you know whether a customer feels the love? Well, mm, they come mm-hmm. back for more and they bring their friends. Yeah. And those are the things that we measure. One of them simple, you know, coming back for more, but maybe simple is an overstatement. Sure. But net revenue retention rates mm-hmm. is not a brand new idea. You just want to see how much your current customers are giving you in the next period.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The trickier one you mentioned was how do I track this referral flow? Because mm-hmm. that's even a higher standard. Sometimes I'll go, come back for more just out of laziness or, yeah, I bought the software. I'm not going to shift totally. now. It's, sure. it's like yeah. monster effort or change banks. Oh, my God. I have, how, much, <laughs> how much time do I have for administrative bureaucratic detail sure. and re, redoing all my bill pay addresses? Yeah. So the referral is actually the higher standard because it's from a fresh start. Would you recommend this to a friend? Yeah. And we don't track that today. Yeah. We just count it as, oh, it's extra credit. And no, it's actually the core of this whole thing. Mm. And so earned growth, as you've seen in the book, I show a very practical way of keeping track of referral flows. Yeah. Every time a customer comes in the door, and as mm-hmm. new, mm-hmm. you ask them, whether mm-hmm. it's online or it's a human being, what's mm. the primary reason uh, you've decided to do business with us? Mm. And you might give them a few choices, but when they say referral recommendation, yeah, that is an earned customer and you should keep track of that and put that in the customer record. And you'll find, I think, the economics, the behavior and the economics of those earned customers are wildly different than the bought customers that the accountants are, are conflating into one new business number and, uh, and confusing things.
0: Yeah, so- and, and I just want to um, add to your to your comments, Fred, because um, Seth Godin is another very famous marketeer that I'm sure you um, are very well aware of. I'm sure you've probably even done some work with him. But just at the end of October, he sent out his usual blog post and the, the closing line of this particular one. I just thought I'd read it to you, Fred, because it's exactly what I've been reading in your book. And he literally said the single biggest marketing bargain remains a customer who chooses to recruit new customers. And I thought, my goodness, is Seth Godin saying it and Fred Reichelt is saying it. I mean, I think it's really time for the world to sit up and pay attention to this new way of doing business.
1: Yeah, I, I you know, Godin is a, a brilliant a thousand times more famous than I am. But, you know, he's had an enormous <laughs> impact. Uh, the thing that separates me from, you know, I, I, I think you have to measure it. Yeah. And, and now we have a way to measure it and, yeah. and therefore bring it to life and have it appropriately valued. Totally.
0: Yeah. And you used another term as well a couple of times, Fred, throughout the book, which I think, again, probably needs to be part of our language going forward. And you've just called it customer capitalism. Um, So I think that's a very big shift, as you've talked about, from the uh, traditional way of measuring success of a business and through all of the financial capitalism. So will you just explain customer capitalism and why you think that term is important to be to be using?
1: Yeah, I think uh, the, the historic financial capitalism that has a lot of Milton Friedman mixed in about the purpose of a company is to maximize shareholder value. And,
3: yeah. and
1: certainly all of the governance systems I've, uh, on the public company boards I've served on, we spend 80, 90 percent of our time on financial metrics and wow. audited numbers. It, it's, and yeah. when you're thinking about doing a deal, uh, with acquisition or, or uh, selling you, you get reminded by your lawyers, look, if you don't have a clear uh, evidence, clear evidence that you're acting in your shareholders, best interest, you'll go, you'll get sued. Wow. So there's people out there reminding you that mm-hmm. the most important, oh, or it, let's say that you, uh, you mess up on the numbers that you report to wall street. Now mm-hmm. with Sarbanes-Oxley, you can go to jail. Yeah. So there is an incredible scrutiny of financial numbers. And that's how all governance, that's how companies behave. That's how we mm. allocate our capital. That's how we pay bonuses. And so you can't just be, you know, you can't have that running in your circulatory system <laughs> and, and think clearly about love as the core driver and referrals because we don't even know how to measure those things. Yeah. And I'll go to jail if I screw up on profits. So that must <laughs> be really important. Sure, Or oh, you'll go banker, you know, banker, bankers know you, you'll, you'll, they'll call your loans if you're not meeting your covenants. Yeah. So this notion of, I need to create a mindset where people see how capitalism evolved from this old financially driven capitalism to one where customers are the true currency. Because yeah. when you think about value and economic terms, mm. the value of a firm is what customers pay you in, Mm. in, in terms of coming back for more and bringing their friends. That's, that's where all the value comes from. And, and that, when you start thinking about that as this, this, the real, the restrained resource in a, in, in growing a business, you start saying, well, there's plenty of capital floating around the world. And, um, but, but we, there's not plenty of customers who want to do business with us and are referring their friends. Mm. So it, it's a mindset shift. To it to the economic system that I think is the is the accurate one for today, yeah. yeah. And and it's a big, sh- you know, it's not just a little shift. It's a rethink <laughs> yeah. of the purpose of a business. I mean, yeah. it's not to maximize shareholder value. I know that sounds communist or socialist, yeah. But but those companies that love their customers the best are the ones who are delivering the best returns to shareholders. Just just read the book if yeah. you're if you're skeptical of that.
0: Yeah. And and there's two statistics I'll directly quote, Fred, from the book. So first of all, you reference um, another book by a gentleman by the name of Jim Collins, who had written a book called Good to Great, um, which I believe sold over five million copies. Um, And that would be, I think, a very typical example of um, the financial capitalism approach of the past that we've been talking about. And you know, again, with the benefit of your, your colleagues in Bain, you've obviously looked at the total shareholder return of those firms. And the statistic is, is quite shocking. In fact, that those companies, which are literally you know, identified as the great ones, literally only achieved 0.4 times um, the total shareholder return of the median US firm. Whereas the 11 public firms that you um, had been measuring um, in terms of the ultimate question 2.0, outperformed the stock market by more than fivefold in the decade after you published that book. That should be evidence enough alone, Fred, that um, there's a different way that we need to look at this.
1: Yeah, when I did that uh, analysis or or the Bain team that did that analysis, um, I, I was stunned. Yeah. I had heard rumors that, yeah, all those companies <laughs> that the Jim and Jim Collins, another just a total genius. What an sure. impact on the world he's had. Great. Yeah. But I think I think I, I've added to to maybe improve the mindset that that he developed with good to great, because yeah. those companies that he based the eleven companies on which which he used as exemplars of these the, the rules that were so powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean five million readers. That that's a I mean I think only the Bible outsells that. that <laughs> that's incredible. Sure. And and yet the exemplars were mostly horrible performers in the decade, right? Starting when that book was published, as yeah. you said, their stock performance was only 0. 0.4 or 0. 0.5 times the median of mm-hmm. so mediocre would be median. So these yeah. guys are worse than mediocre. Oh my goodness. And many of them mm-hmm. were sending people to jail and monstrous government fines. So from a moral point of ethical, they were horrible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and of course, there were several really good companies in there. So this isn't painting all of them, yeah. but the vast majority are not companies I want my kids to be working for right now. <laughs> and, and, and that, and yet that's great. in yeah. the mindset of a when you, you know, why were they chosen? He looked at the uh, financial performance and stock price performance of these companies that went from mediocre to, yeah. to big improvements. And mm-hmm. man, when you just look at the financials um, remember financials help us measure uh, how many million dollars we're extracting from our customers wallets. Mm-hmm. But they don't tell us when we're enriching the lives of our customers or when we're providing our employees with inspiring, meaningful yeah. work.
3: Yeah. And those no.
1: latter two things are fundamentally more important in defining greatness. Yes. And then, you know, the economics prove it out. As you point out, The I mm-hmm. went back and looked at the stock price performance of the mm-hmm. 11 public companies in mm-hmm. the Ultimate Question 2.0, my yeah. exemplars. Yeah. Um, five times the stock market median. Mm-hmm. Over the ten years, uh, starting with the publication of that book, and you mm-hmm. go, "Wow, that's amazing!" Yeah, and people are blind to this. W- w- what is go? <laughs> we are so b- blinded by the financial mindset and yeah. the Wall Street Journal's take on yeah. success and greatness that yeah. um, we're not seeing the underlying customer love flywheel mm-hmm. that uh, is really driving long-term success.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I loved your title, actually, Fred, in chapter two, where you uh, talked about your purposeful theory of investing. And you used a lovely acronym, um, which is the, the FRED stock index, FRED-C, I think is the, the acronym, um, yeah. which is all about foster recommendation, eliminate detraction, and obviously tracking then the total shareholder return, as you said, for that portfolio of companies. And again, as you said, extraordinary results with the benefit of hindsight, it sounds so obvious, but um, obviously, you know, the, the metrics in place at the time helped you foresee where the customer love would drive. The total shareholder returns.
1: Yeah, and you know, winning on purpose it makes the argument that uh, loving customers is is an unbeatable strategy. Yeah, and and we can measure that when net promoter is measured correctly, it measures it quite well. Yeah, um, and and but it's hard to measure. You need large panels, you know, thousands and thousands of customers yeah. who are on a panel and uh, through double-blind research, so you can get accurate, unbiased. Uh, responses. And we didn't have that for many years. And Bain invested in a new business called NPS Prism, Mm -hmm. which develops that kind of the gold standard, excellent NPS data. Mm -hmm. Now we know who's best in each of these industries as when when NPS Prism adds a new industry and x-rays it. I know who the NPS leader is. And Um. when I find a company at the top of the charts like that, where the leaders clearly through their statements believe in this taking you know customers first mm. i invest my personal money in it i've been doing that since i wrote the ultimate question wow. and my my returns on that portfolio mm-hmm. um have been essentially triple the uh, the vanguard index fund over the last decade
3: my goodness it, if you
1: want you now everyone spouts these kinds of statistics i looked on Morningstar, which, which tracks all of the ETFs and mutual funds that are mm-hmm. easily available to the public. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, no fund came close to my returns. Cause if you take that tripling of the stock market that, that essentially gave me 26% yeah. per year, uh, rate of return wow. on my investment in customer love leaders. Yeah. Um, the closest mutual fund it was at about 19. That was the the best of all the thousands of funds. Yeah. And here I am sitting at 26 <laughs> with with my simple little strategy <laughs> of investing in my Vanguard brokerage account each time yeah. I find an NPS leader. Yeah. So it, it, once again, that's pretty powerful evidence. Yeah. But you know, even though I have told a number of people about those results, I don't have investment, uh, analysts knocking on my door wow. trying to strike that deal with me to, yeah. uh, to, yeah. to, let them invest, it, you know, it's just, the mindset is so
3: yeah powerful yeah.
1: that, yeah, they come up with different explanations and, and, you know, it started with the 11, uh, the ultimate question companies, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. we've added seven or eight more.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I under, I, Tesla, Seemed yeah. like an way overvalued, puffed up stock where it's always in the news. But then yeah. when that when NPS Prism showed that they have ten points higher NPS than any of the other car companies, I said, "Hmm, this this could be a this is Amazon ten years ago." Yeah. So I invested in Tesla.
2: Mm. The,
1: the it, it does you know it's it doesn't work hundred percent of the time, but mm. darn close.
3: Yeah. Because when you yeah. got
1: that little flywheel running. At a better uh, cycle, the, the the back for more and bring their friends. Mm. You can screw up a lot of decisions <laughs> and still recover, and and that has driven it's it's the most robust economic engine around, and it's it's wildly undervalued by the analyst community because they yeah. they just their mindset does not let them see it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's very early days, Fred. I think that is something that's going to take perhaps a generation or two, dare I say it. But what I did love in the book is that you do give so many case studies. And as somebody who doesn't even live in the US or or, or really, I suppose, do even a lot of work there, it's fantastic to see brands that I know by reputation. So you mentioned Tesla. Uh, you mentioned a new um, credit card by the name of Discover, um, which was uh, beating American Express and extraordinary case study. Uh, Chick-fil-A um, and Chewy, another particular favorite. So I'm a cat parent, Fred. I know you uh, have fish and we definitely have to talk about the koi story. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but I, I had even been aware of Chewy as um, how well it loved its customers from bizarrely a post on LinkedIn. And again, I know you're extremely active on LinkedIn and have been an influencer there from the very early days. But literally this approach that Chewy has, for example, to understand if a customer calls up to cancel perhaps a subscription for let's say food for a pet if the pet has passed away that they have an entire team dedicated to sending flowers to that customer or really reaching out to to express their genuine sympathy that a pet has passed rather than obviously the the historic mindset of as we talked about financial transactions and losing a customer they're really focused on loving what that poor person's going through and i saw that on linkedin even way before I read your book.
1: Yeah, I was struck uh I know Chewy is a great example of a pure online pet food and now medical supplies uh for yeah. pets. So no human face-to-face touch and yet their their net promoter score showed up in our uh in Bain's rigorous research as being boy I, it's in the book and I can't remember the but let's say 20 points, you know, it was a huge advantage versus yeah. Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. and Amazon's pet um, business. And so when I saw that I said, whoa, this is a special company and, and, and I I talked to friends who were chewy because my daughter is a chewy customer and you yeah. find out, oh my gosh, this is yeah. another chick-fil-A. this is another Tesla, this is another enterprise. Wow. look at what they're doing for their customers mm-hmm. and, and, and you know so I invested in it and we'll see how it does. But at, at the core, I think they've got the right strategy.
0: Yeah. And one you mentioned there is Amazon. And again, in the book, you talk through, you know, so much of what Amazon does right. And we all know Jeff Bezos, um, you know, was customer obsessed, um, laser focus on creating value for his customers. Um, obviously, there's a change of guard now in Amazon. Um, but you did identify one particular area that Amazon doesn't seem to have in the past focused on and that you feel was really missing in terms of their overall vision. So I'd love you just to talk through the Amazon principles as you understand them and maybe what else you think they need to be thinking about.
1: Yeah, I use Amazon as an example a, a large example in in the chapter on on living principles that I think if if you're in a if you're a leader of a company and you want your Employees to be inspired to embrace the mission of loving customers.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You got to build a culture that reinforces that and and puts that front and center. Yeah, and Amazon has done a brilliant job of laying out those principles, yeah. linking them to who they hire, how they. Uh, Promote people, coaching and feedback and training. It's all around these principles. That and the number one, the, the overarching Uber principle is is customer obsession. They mm. always act in the customer's best interest. Mm. And and yeah, I think they have room to improve on how they treat employees and how they inspire employees. Mm-hmm. Although I I have a feeling it's more of a mixed track record than the press leads it leads you of to course. believe. Okay. Uh, I I haven't found a person that works for or worked for Amazon. Yeah. I personally know who didn't feel like their time there was a great move for them. Okay. Okay. Warehouses. I, I just know what I read and, and the lesson I I, I tend to trust a lot less of what I read (laughs) because you only, you know, journalists put stuff that's newsworthy and it tends to be tail cases. They don't put, Average cases, and yeah. so we'll see that you know that. And I think Bezos obviously thought it was under mm-hmm. emphasized. He added the, the couple of principles around
2: mm-hmm. treating
1: people right and yeah. and being a great place to work, which I yeah th- I think is a very wise uh, amendment to their list of principles.
0: Yeah, and you're right. I mean, and it's a great um, opportunity to to review, I suppose, how Amazon launched Amazon Prime, for example. Um, and again, looking at industry leaders like Costco, who, again, you've explained, put customers absolutely top of the list of priorities. And um, again, quite surprisingly or shockingly, uh, you know, investors at the bottom of that list in terms of where they focus their energies. So I, I do agree Amazon does so much, so well and um, does get some bad press, which is perhaps inevitable for a company of its size. But there was a genius piece as well, Fred, that I thought um, I loved that you included how um, employees are encouraged to come up with concepts to wow customers based on writing a simulated <laughs> press release. I thought this was a genius idea.
1: Uh, th- there's a few genius ideas inside <laughs> Amazon. Uh, yeah. it, for, uh, really, really genius. Yeah. And, and of course, you know, they measure net promoter yeah. Uh, with the rigor that a Bain would use in they look at the competitors and it's double it's blind. So you don't get yeah. biases and you get the appropriate sampling. Yeah. Um, and they they care. Uh, they want to be number one in NPS in each yeah. core segment.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um. And then they'll 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 drive their 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 strategies and their priorities accordingly. Mm. The, the thing one thing I mentioned in the book that I I think most people will miss it. I think they have a brilliant system of uh, employee feedback rather than just blasting out this annual employee survey once Mm -hmm. a
3: year. Okay. They
1: ask one question a day, uh, their employees, when they open up their computer and the screen, there's one question there that Mm -hmm. they have to answer, not right away, but before noon. And so they've got this constant dialogue where wow. they're learning from employees what needs to improve, what do we need to do differently with customers, what's, you know, what are we living these principles? And that is genius. But yeah. I've never heard anyone talk about it before. It's as if it doesn't even exist.
0: Mm. Well, there you go. You're talking about it now, Fred. So that's amazing. Um, And just as you mentioned, your colleagues there in Bain as well, Fred, you're obviously uh, you've co-authored this book, in fact, with two of the um, the leadership team there in Bain. So I'd love for you to tell us a bit about Darcy Darnell and Maureen Burns.
1: Darcy is the head of our customer practice. She took on that role from Rob Markey, who was my co-author on The Ultimate Question 2.0. Yeah and uh, whose podcast you're familiar with. Sure. Um, And then Maureen is uh, a senior partner in the Boston office who has focused on net promoter and and customer issues uh, almost exclusively over her. Oh, I don't know if she's been here 10 or 20 years, but, you know, a long time. Mm. And they they, they made such enormous editing improvements to the book that at some point it became nuts not to include them (laughs) as, as, as co-authors because they really did. uh, They shaped it in a very, very important ways. And, but, you know, there are so many Bainies who shaped this book. We have an editorial board. I think there were 10 people that read the book and gave feedback Um, Darcy and, and Maureen went way beyond that.
0: Wow. And Bainies, that's obviously the name for people that you work with together. Yeah.
1: Yes. Um, I guess it's sort of an internal, uh, that's what we call ourselves.
0: I like it. And you have 44 years there, Fred. That's absolutely extraordinary.
1: Yeah. It. Well, I went half time with a Bain Fellow role 25 years ago. Okay. And it really let me focus on writing and research. And when I do work in consulting with teams, it's always in areas that I think I can make a difference in it's sort of cutting edge work, cutting the greatest challenges around yeah. customer love and customer loyalty. Mm. So it, it it's worked, it's worked very well for me. Okay. But it is, yeah, it's a long time. I've been able to watch the firm, but in the early I joined, let's see, how old was Bain when I joined? It was probably like four or five years old. The oh, founders yeah. had broken away from Boston consulting group. Okay. Built this little startup. And, and, you know, today it's multi-billion dollar firm with offices all around the world. It, yeah. and, and I tell the story that in the 90s, I think we, we took on this financial mindset to a flaw yeah. and almost went bankrupt. The firm almost exploded. Wow. And, and how we got it back on track is very instructional, I think, to anybody who yeah. feels like, geez, all oh, my employees are quitting and I don't know how to hire. How am I going to get things back on track? Yeah, well, we'll read that. I think it's, it's chapter four, if I recall correctly, but it goes through sure. the Bain disaster, the yeah. turnaround and and how the new leadership thinks about culture and values and, and how to build those into on persistent you know, systems yeah. that drive uh, drive priorities through the organization.
0: OK. Okay. Yeah, no, it is. It's an amazing story. And um, I already alluded to it as well earlier, uh, Fred, but um, we, we did uh, have a great uh, insight in terms of how your daughter Jenny um, added one question to your NPS, which I know you found uh, totally outrageous initially and then actually concluded, uh, that she was actually quite right in what she did. So just as a final piece on NPS, do you want to tell us just a bit about what Jenny started doing in terms of measuring the net promoter score where she herself was working?
1: Yeah. Jenny ran the, uh, the customer feedback process and the, uh, the phone center and, and a number of functions for a, for a big wine retailer in the U S mm. maybe the big, maybe the biggest and, and, uh, she she was she was using the net promoter uh, approach in a very effective way i thought and mm. i've even used some of her examples and stories in the book yeah. and in, in articles but one day she said, "Dad, you're not going to like this, but we added another question to the <laughs> survey." And, I, and I've heard this so many people oh, yeah. turn the, 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 the two-question Net Promoter survey into a market research project with 20 questions. Yeah, they just can't stop themselves. Sure. And so I was—I had a pretty fixed reaction that this was a horrible idea. But she yeah. then showed me the facts that it was a great idea. So now, I my standard approach for the Net Promoter. This classic is a three question survey it asks how likely wow. you would recommend this to a friend zero through 10 yeah what's the primary reason for your score yeah and and then the jenny question is uh and and it's only for the promoters and and uh, and passives it, it, it is there anything we could have done to make your experience more remarkable okay and i used to think wouldn't they have put that in the second because the, these are this one scoring question mm-hmm. zero to ten and then mm-hmm. an open text verbatim Sure. And I told Jenny, wouldn't people are going to put an idea there if they if it's important? She said, no, they don't, because they tend to put things like explaining why they're happy, like, oh, Cynthia at the checkout was so wonderful. Yeah. But what you don't get is, is there anything else that could have made your experience better? And people think they say, yeah, that craft beer that I used to like, it's just it's not there anymore. Or yeah. you know, the light uh, over over the parking lot over or over the north side is, has been out for three months. So you get feedback from your best customers, you, people who care about you, your promoters and yeah. passives. Yeah. And and it often is, those. that's where the gems are hidden. So yeah. I call it the Jenny question, and I think most companies <laughs> should, should ask it.
0: It's a brilliant one. Brilliant. So listen, we've talked about NPS, of course, extensively now, Fred. Um, We did, I think, a great uh, piece as well about earned growth rate. But the other big topic, I suppose, just in closing that I wanted to touch on is the golden rule. You alluded to it earlier uh, from, I think, a biblical perspective. But would you mind just explaining exactly the golden rule? Because I think that articulates and encapsulates exactly what winning on purpose is all about.
1: Yeah, it's an entire chapter in the book, and how presumptuous is that, right, <laughs> Fred? Deciding he can add on this thousands of years of wisdom that that one yes. goes back to Confucius. Yes, but it, so it's it's more of just a recounting, I guess. But I I think the golden rule, correctly understood, is is the the, the gold standard of human relationships. It's 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 the highest standard we have. The, yeah, it evolved from don't do bad things to other people. That's yeah. the Confucius, and and I think even the the uh, the Torah would would state it that way. Don't do bad things to yeah. uh, others. But then uh, Jesus is credited with uh, raising the game to uh, love thy neighbor as thyself. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that transition is brilliant. And it, it is the difference I see in great companies. They mm. don't just satisfy customers and then grab as much money from their pockets as they can legally. Yeah. They, they try to they love customers and make their lives better Mm -hmm. and, and grab enough money from their pockets to make sure they've got a sustainable business system and they can pay their employees well and give investors a fair return. Mm -hmm. But any overage goes back to the customer. So they're maximizing value for customers And it's so different that that notion of loving customers in a golden rule way. Yeah. And what you know, what separates great leaders and great companies is their moral, ethical standards. It's not
2: Mm.
1: brilliant strategies because strategies come and go. Technologies come and go. Yeah. What seems to have permanence is uh, teams that are committed To living up to this golden rule standard of how they treat each other and loving their customers.
0: Yeah. And as we said already, Fred, I know this um, this particular book has already been 10 years um, of work uh, since your last book. So there's plenty of thought and deep thinking obviously gone into it. Um, But at the same time, it just feels like extraordinary that it's only now. And I think maybe the pandemic has maybe focused all of our minds in terms of the importance of going back to these very human, very loving principles. Mm -hmm. And as you said, a golden rule that if we can literally execute that in our daily lives, whether Where work, play, home, family, whatever. I just think the world would be a very different place if we actually practice that golden rule. And as you said, it's it's, it's over 2000 years old. So it's certainly not new, but I'd love to see that coming through in the book.
1: Yeah, the book was written for my two new grand, brand new granddaughters. Uh, It's life, life with wisdom for living a good life. Mm -hmm. And it's disguised as a business book. But Mm -hmm. if you read with that in mind, it's yeah, what you know, life is so much influenced by the people you choose to, to spend your finite mm-hmm. minutes on Earth with, and and yeah. invest in relationships with, and so yeah, that that has implications for what companies you want to buy from because mm-hmm. you're going to be interacting with those people, <laughs> and yeah, hey, what companies you want to work for, the enormous influence on your life, what companies you want to invest in, yeah and and this this same yes the same golden rule philosophy yeah plays throughout every one of those dimensions of life and and i try to i write it in that personal yes you know because yes yeah, it's, it's about purpose driven companies mm-hmm. but it is it's it's my take on a purpose driven life yeah and the the advantage of doing it in a corporate community is companies can help you measure your progress on the dimensions that count. How mm-hmm. many lives that you touch were enriched? Yeah. How many people feel like you lived up to the golden rule? How many people would recommend you as a leader? These yes. are things that if you care about living up to that standard, mm-hmm. a, a corporate community is almost uniquely uh, capable of, of offering those tools. The, the, the Apple is a great example. They, mm-hmm. The employees out in the stores, they mm-hmm. know... Of all the lives they touch, how many are enriched? Mm. What an amazing advantage that is if you actually care about getting better on that dimension.
0: Yeah. And I will definitely agree with exactly what you said in terms of the style of the book, Fred, because I actually read very few business books, um, but I did feel that this was super easy, really accessible. And I just wrote down some words that you talked about actually, um, something about the concept of simplicity releases power. So I definitely felt that coming through in the style of what you've written. So um, certainly from my side, um, it was super enjoyable to be able to read it in that way. And uh, obviously want to make sure that that all of our listeners have a chance to uh, to enjoy the book themselves um, uh, and I'll make sure to link to that. So first of all, I'm just going to recap, uh, Winning on Purpose is the name of the book. Um, it's available now, as we've talked about on Amazon and I presume anywhere that you can get your books. Um, I don't have any final, I suppose, questions on the book, Fred. Um, I did want to check in on a health perspective because you do open the book in quite dramatic fashion with uh, quite a serious health diagnosis. So you sound super healthy. Well, please tell us, how are you doing?
1: I feel good, thank you. But I, in a couple of weeks, I go in for my uh, annual cancer scan and I'll know more then. But I do, uh, I, I'm pleased to have had this time that uh, it's been a, a little bit of a gift.
0: Sure, it S- certainly focuses the mind, huh?
1: Uh, yeah.
0: Yeah, brilliant. Well, listen, is there anything else, Fred, that you wanted to talk about in terms of the book or any of these big ideas before we wrap up?
1: No, we've covered, I, I think we've covered so many of the important ideas, but you know, if you want to lead a good life as a person, yeah, um, then you better figure out ways to be useful. <laughs> And, and love love your partners and, and make their lives better. And that that is the objective. I in at Bain we figured out um, what drives team happiness is it, one question will get you 80% of the insight is do you feel like a valued member of a team that's mm-hmm. winning with its customers is the, the essence of it. Okay. You gotta be a valued member of a winning team and you have gotta define winning as enriching the lives that you touch. Yeah, and with with that simple idea, mm-hmm. then measure it and set your priorities that way. And you know, it, it it's not just a feel good thing. That's actually what drives economic success. Yeah, uh, yeah. Over the long haul.
0: Wonderful. Well, listen, I think it's a perfect note to wrap up. So, Fred Reichelt, creator of the Net Promoter System and author of Winning on Purpose. Thank you so much from Let's Talk Loyalty.
1: It's been a pleasure.
0: This show is sponsored by The Wise Marketeer, the world's most popular source of loyalty marketing news, insights and research.